The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Good morning. If you are with the Threes and Fours class, thank you for worshiping with us. You are dismissed to your class. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, um, Christian Norton's not. Oh, yes, here we go. Uh, if, if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand, and uh, one of our church members will be glad to bring you a hard copy of God's Word. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 18. Uh, I'm going to read verses 18 through 25 from last week, and then we'll transition into verse 26 through 31 of this week. I don't think that's in the computer, Stephen, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a little bit ahead. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, <clears throat> so that we can kind of have a recap of last week as well uh, before we dive into this week's text. So let me read for us, and then we will pray for understanding. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? Of this age. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greek seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's last week. This is this week. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to obey these texts of Scripture as we study uh, this morning. Uh, Father, help me personally to preach in a spirit of repentance and humility that this text calls for. I pray that you would help us to consider our callings, help us to boast in only the Lord, we pray, uh, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 
4, consider your calling, brothers. This is the command of the paragraph. The command is consider. That is, think over something. Meditate upon something. Meditate particularly on your calling. We've seen that word in 1 Corinthians several times already. We've seen it in the introduction. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God's faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. And again, in verses 23 through 24 that we just read, the difference maker between those who find Christ to be a stumbling block and those who find him to be foolishness, the difference is that they are called, both Jews and Greeks. According to Paul, God was not passive on the day that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. According to Paul, God was not sitting in heaven just hoping and wishing that maybe you might get it right. According to Paul, God actively and effectively called you out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. He calls people out of faithlessness and into saving faith. Much like Jesus comes to the grave of Lazarus and says, Lazarus comes forth. And he stands up and walks out of the tomb. If you are a Christian, God has called you to come forth out of a death that you could not escape if he had not called. The word called throughout 1 Corinthians 1 emphasizes God's activity, God's will in bringing people out of their unbelief, out of their spiritual darkness, off of, as the song describes, their hell-bound race, and he turns them around from going hellward to heavenward. And he calls them in a direction different from the direction they were running to. And what Paul wants these Corinthians to do for just a moment, and what he wants you to do in the room, he wants you to consider, to just stop your busy life, to stop all the doom scrolling on social media, to, to stop all the things that you're thinking about that will not matter a million years from now. And what he wants you to do is just to stop all that and consider something, to think about something, particularly your calling from God, particularly Paul wants the Corinthians to consider their salvation story. He wants them to think about what they've been saved from, what they were saved out of, and even what they were like when God saved them. You see that what we've been confronted with so far in 1 Corinthians is a church that is very much divided. They're very much divided primarily because they're allowing their desire for power and strength and position and influence and self-gratification and to be right over and above their brothers, they're letting those desires drive them into quarreling with one another. And last week we saw that they're so bent to the cultural norms of Corinth that they were drifting away from the primary message of the cross. And in doing so, they had forgotten their own position before God. 
their own story of being called by God. So Paul wants to essentially remind them where they came from. So what are the repeated phrases here in the beginning in verse 26? Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful, which has uh, at its root uh, influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. In other words, the world would not have chosen you for salvation. If God's criteria were the kind of standard, the kind of criteria that you Corinthians are using against one another, then you would not have been chosen yourself. You see how that works? In other words, you Corinthians are quarreling over your favorite leaders who meet all the worldly standards that you don't actually meet. And we could pause there briefly because I think that we see in that argument an interesting but common reality. How often do we hold others to a standard that we ourselves are not capable of withstanding? How often are we offended or frustrated or fed up with someone who is doing what we ourselves are guilty of in the moment? (laughs) It's interesting that our relational and spiritual standards for others can often be impeccably high, while at the same time we crumble under those same standards if they were placed on us. The Corinthians are quarreling over which leader is wisest according to the world's standards, and Paul's saying, you ain't it. (laughs) You are not wise according to the world standards. You're not influential. You're not of noble birth. And now, Paul, what he's trying to do is to bring them back down to reality. Let's think for a second what you were saved out of. When God saved you, you were not the things that you now emphasize. And Paul's point is, but God saved you. God called you. God chose you. And it wasn't an accident. It was very much on purpose. And this leads us to truth number one that I think Paul's emphasizing here. God chooses unimpressive, sinful people. He chooses unimpressive, sinful people. Look at verses 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul reminds the Corinthians, you're not a Christian because you were smarter than everybody else. You're not a Christian because you were more influential, not because you were more powerful, not because you're more wealthy, not because you were born to the right family. In fact, if you notice the repetition of the word chose there, the emphasis is God did this for you. God, this is God's grace. He's choosing the foolish to shame the wise, choosing the weak to shame the strong, choosing the low and despised in the world, things that are not. Quite literally, that phrase is the nothings. God's choosing the nothings of the world to bring to nothing the things that are. Apparently, Paul believes God's intentionally choosing the kinds of people and the kinds of situations that the world would deem unusable. And apparently there's a divine purposefulness to this. Now this theme is not just in 1 Corinthians. This theme is the whole Bible. 
I mean, you read the whole Bible, and what you see is God working through people not because they're worthy of being worked in, but to show that he's the God who is worthy, right? I mean, in Genesis 12, Sarah, Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, the promise is that Sarah, a barren elderly woman in her 90s, will have offspring that will become a great nation that will bring blessing to the whole world. God didn't have to do it that way, but why does he choose a 90-year-old barren woman through which the promise would come? In Exodus, Moses is a stuttering, frightened criminal on the run for murder, hiding in the wilderness for 40 years, and God calls him to confront Pharaoh and the army. In our community groups, we're studying 1 Samuel. It's Hannah, the barren woman, through whom God will give a son who would become priest and prophet over Israel. In in 1 Samuel, David, the youngest and smallest son in the family, who'd been keeping the flocks, would be chosen to fight Goliath and become the king. I mean, just over and over and over, it's the one that you don't think God can use that God then intentionally uses. And then Jesus... I mean, he just demonstrates this for us in the flesh. He walks up to tax collectors and fishermen and zealots, and he calls them before they had done anything good, anything noteworthy, before they had faith, before they had repentance, before they'd uh, done anything to deserve any kind of call. Jesus walks up to them, to the nothings, as far as the world is concerned, and he says, follow me. And they, and they drop everything and they bring nothing to the relationship with Jesus but their sin and their struggles and their baggage. Paul himself keeps ever before him where he came from. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he just burst out into praise to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What's Paul doing? He's, he's reflecting on where he came from. He's considering his call. And as he does, it does three things in him. It humbles him. It makes him more useful for the mission. And then it just leads him to worship the king of kings, And now that's the right progression. When you consider your calling, it humbles you. It readies you to be used by the Lord, and it leads you to worship. And that's the progression that I think we see unfolding in 1 Corinthians. Look back at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28. Why is God doing it this way? Why does God work to save the undeserving. Well, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, comma, big phrase here in the Bible, so that. I mean, so that means, okay, here's why God does this this way. So here's 
the reason behind the way God operates in the world. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Truth number two, God opposes arrogance. God chooses to save and forgive unimpressive and sinful people. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now that that phrase tells us two things. It teaches us two things. It teaches us something about humanity. It teaches us something about God. First, the thing about humanity. It tells us that our natural proclivity, the tendency, the leaning of every heart is bent toward arrogance. It's bent toward pride. It's bent toward boasting in ourselves. Adam and Eve reached toward the forbidden fruit under the illusion that they would be like God, the serpent promises. Their curse has become my curse. Their curse has become our curse, that our hearts Everyone in the room, this should sting everyone in the room in some way because our hearts are ever grasping for what will make us feel in control, sovereign, and better than we really are and better than everyone else. Our hearts are constantly grasping for something that will make us better than we really are. And as an added bonus, better than those people around us. You see, arrogance, it's not, like an, it's not only an action. It's not an action. It's a way of being that expresses itself in all kinds of actions. Gordon Fee offers some enlightening uh, commentary on the actual word for boast here in this text. He writes, the word presents considerable difficulty for translation. It can mean to take pride in or to glory or hence boast. But at times, especially here, it comes very close to the concept of trust. That is to put one's full confidences. So, so, so the problem with hu- the human heart and mind is that we more naturally trust in ourselves then we trust in anything else. We find ourselves to be the most trustworthy. And though we are in continual need of things that are outside of our control, like oxygen, gravity, sleep, the ongoing function of my organs, none of those things are in my control, but I go on fooling myself that I am a self-sufficient being. Nothing about my physical existence communicates that I'm a self-sufficient being. Everything about my physical existence communicates I'm needy. Like, it, like I, if I don't have lunch, I'm needy. Some of y'all are hangry and needy. You feel that you lack something that you need to exist all the time. And God made you that way on purpose. So that every day, around 9 or 10 o'clock p.m., you'd be reminded you're needy because you're tired. But we go on believing that we do not need what God says we need, that we don't need prayer, that we don't need anyone to adjust our perspective, that we don't need close Christian community, that we don't need the food of God's word in our lives. We go on believing that we are always right and everyone else is somehow always wrong. (laughs) Isn't that just befuddling? 
all of you are always right all the time. Yet you disagree constantly, right? It is our nature to be prideful people because our nature is a sinful nature. And arrogance expresses itself in all kinds of ways. For some, it's very obvious. There's a stench to arrogance. You almost smell it. And the way that someone walks or speaks and the way they interact with people and the way they respond when they are confronted and the way they're slow to listen or slow to consider or quick to, to speak. It's a, it's a funny thing that we all actually hate other people's arrogance. <laughs> the only arrogance that we're perfectly content with is our own, right? We're fine with that, <laughs> but arrogance is one of those unique sins that all of us actually don't like it when other people have it. We don't like to be around it, yet we're content with the monster hiding inside of us. And though it expresses itself in different ways, arrogance and pride is the monster in our hearts that will continually gain ground lest it is crucified in the presence of God. Now let's, let's turn our attention back to to what this teaches us about God, verse 29, so that no human being might boast. That's their temptation in the presence of God. Now, that's an interesting way to put it. Now, why not just say so that no human being might boast? Just put a period on it, move on to the next thing. Why be so wordy, Paul? Why include in the presence of God unless Paul wants to communicate something about arrogance and the presence of God not jiving well, like not going together? There's something about God's intention. So, so remember, God's work, what he's doing, he's saving sinful people, unimpressive people. The reason is he doesn't want people to boast. There's something about the presence of God which consumes arrogance. It eradicates it. it, it there's something about being in the presence of God that confronts arrogance. You see, arrogance is the opposite of God's purpose for the whole universe. I'll say that again. Arrogance is the opposite of God's purpose for the whole universe. The universe exists by a God who created it and sustains it, and the universe glorifies God through its dependence and rejoicing over what only God has done. And we exist to do that, to worship God for what only God has done. We see when you step into the presence of a God who has always existed and who needs nothing and from which every created thing came into the being, it's really hard to brag about how much you bench press, right? <laughs> it's, it's really hard to feel impressive when you stand in front of a holy God. You see, pride evaporates in the presence of true self-sufficiency, the self-sufficient one, like Isaiah who steps into the throne room of God and sees God, he declares, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the presence of a people of unclean lips. And the way God saves us, what it highlights is the same thing all of the universe highlights. God deserves all the glory. Let me listen to this, uh, these, this word from Gordon Fee again as he meditates on this so that, and this boasting. Listen to what he writes. It should be on the screen. 
With this clause, Paul expresses the ultimate purpose of the divine folly so that no one may boast before him. God, it turns out, deliberately chose the foolish things of the world, the cross, the Corinthian believers, so that he could remove forever from every human creature any possible grounds on their part of standing in the divine presence with something in their hand. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not a single thing that any of us possess will advantage him or her before the living God. Not brilliance, clout, achievement, money, or prestige. By choosing the lowly Corinthians, God declared that he has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of gaining his favor. It is all trust him completely or nothing. Truth number two, God opposes arrogance. So what happens to our heart's desire to boast? What happens to our heart's desire to uh, uh, exalt? We have something inside of us that does desire exaltation, glory, worship, boasting, proclamation. Well, that desire doesn't just dissipate when you become a Christian. It is redirected when you become a Christian. And this brings us to our final truth. Truth number three. The gospel redirects our boasting. It redirects our boasting. In verse 30 through 31 is that redirection. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that... As it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now let's, there's a lot there. I, I was really tempted to take this whole verse as its own sermon. But let's see if we can, if we can power through this. Old, let, let's look first at the Old Testament quotation that Paul uses here. Um, it's apparent, once again, I mean, we saw this last week, but it's apparent that Paul grounds his understanding of God and God's world in the Old Testament scriptures. He's, he's a man of the book. He, he knows his Bible. He knows the Old Testament scriptures, and he knows that Jesus is the key which unlocks the whole Bible for Paul. And what Paul does here, he references Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. And so, in Jeremiah chapter 9, what we find are these multiple judgment oracles of Jeremiah speaking out against the sin of Israel. Now, I just want you to take a little tour with me here in Jeremiah. Just follow along and let his words speak for himself. But I want you to imagine that Paul is thinking about the problems in Corinth and doing his quiet time in Jeremiah, and you might see how he has come to use this passage. Jeremiah chapter 8, uh, verse 8 is where I'll start. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they've rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? So there's some men in Israel, teachers probably of the law, thinking themselves wiser than God. And when they do that, they turn on each other. Look at Jeremiah 9, verse 4. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 4. 
Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Jeremiah 9, verse 8, Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Verse 12, Who's the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they've forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accordance with it. And lastly, verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast justice and righteousness in the earth, for these things I delight delight in, declares the Lord. Now, you're reading through Jeremiah, and what I think Paul has done here, it seems to be that he's reading through Jeremiah, and he is seeing in these words the state of the Corinthian church. A people so wrapped in their own arrogance that they've turned on one another. Jeremiah pleading with the people of Israel, don't boast in man's might any longer. Don't boast in this, that that you might only boast in this, that you understand and know the Lord. The Lord practices steadfast love. The Lord does justice. The Lord accomplishes righteousness on the earth. And now what Paul does is we see this problem all the way back to ancient Israel. We see this problem in the Corinthian church. and, And I'm here to say that the answer is to boast in the Lord But let me clarify on how exactly the Lord accomplished that steadfast love and justice and righteousness on earth. Verse 30. So here's what Paul's doing. He's bringing it to a climax in Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What Paul does in this sentence is he summarizes The gospel message that is the power to save. The the summary of the word of the cross is in this sentence. What he does is he basically tells the gospel story through distinct words that communicate the best news in the world from a different perspective, like different elements of it, like a diamond that you're just shifting and seeing it shine from different ways. Each word causes this good news of Jesus to shine in a different way. And you say, this is the thing that humbles you and unites you. Here it is. The first word in the phrase, the first phrase is in Christ Jesus. Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. God has united us to Jesus. These are little subpoints. if you want to write these down. God has united us to Jesus. This is a, a matter of identity, a matter of belonging, a matter of unity. To be in Christ Jesus is to be so attached to him that you benefit from all of the blessings that he has earned for himself. My arm is united to my body, and for that I am very thankful, and it be- benefits from my beating heart pumping lifeblood into it, my brain sending signals so it does what I tell it to do, and we are the body of Christ attached to him, united to him, so that his lifeblood is pumped into us so that we move and feel and be and are forgiven and have life because we're in him, attached to him. 
We are in Jesus, relationally and positionally. He's our greatest source of identity and belonging. Secondly, Jesus is our wisdom, according to this verse. The Corinthian culture believed that the wisdom of man would lead to deeper fulfillment, abundant life, and true purpose. What were all those people doing in the Colosseums in Corinth when they were debating and arguing and showing off all of their rhetoric and their, their speech? Well, they're speaking about big things like the purpose of life and, and big questions. And essentially, as they believe, the world's wisdom will give them what their hearts are longing for. Paul disagrees. It's Jesus who is the true wisdom. It's Jesus who accomplished accomplishes for us all the things we might have hoped the world would do for us. Worldly wisdom tells you to seek your deepest sense of identity and fulfillment in sex and stuff and power and pride and position. But Jesus is the only one who comes in and soothes the anxious soul with promises of peace, with true wisdom. He's the only one that quenches a thirsty soul with living water. He's true wisdom. He provides more than what the people of the world even know that they need. Thirdly, Jesus is our righteousness. Here's the message of the gospels told from a different perspective. The gospel is the good news about Christ's righteousness for us. He's not just our wisdom. He's not just uh, our new sense of identity and belonging. No, no, no. He's our righteousness. This is the same word uh, that is used in Romans for justification. Now, uh, that's a word that is discussed and defined at length in Romans, which you've been around here for a long time. You know some things about Romans. What does justification mean? Anybody? Declared righteous, right? declared righteous. This is one way of describing what happens when God calls you to salvation and you believe. It's courtroom language. All of us sinners stand guilty before God. All sinners stand deserving of God's judgment. What is justification? Jesus took that guilt for us at the cross and gives us his righteousness. So that... We might boast in Jesus in the presence of God. So when we stand before the presence of God, we we don't say, look at all the good things I did in my life. Holding on to our church attendance or our mass or our our confirmation or or our fill in the blank. We We don't come to Jesus with stuff in our hands. We come to Jesus with nothing in our hands saying only the righteousness of Jesus allows me to stand in the presence of God. We boast in Jesus alone. Because we're declared right in the sight of God, not because we're actually right. We are actually guilty. (laughs) But we have Christ's righteousness applied to us. Do you realize that everyone in heaven only ever boasts in what the Lord has done? No one in heaven, no one in heaven feels for a moment that they deserve to be there. No one. And the church should be a foreshadow of that kind of community, a kind of community full of people who do not feel that they are owed anything, that they deserve heaven. A group of people overwhelmed by grace that humbles them. Jesus is, uh, we're united to Christ. He's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. 
word that he's already used several times in 1 Corinthians, uh, which carries the, the undertones of ceremonial cleanness. It's the word they used in the temple to describe the act of cleansing, cleansing something for a holy use, a utensil of something, being washed clean, setting it apart to be used in the worship of the temple. And what's communicated is that in Christ, God has set you apart. He's plucked you from your filthiness, cleaned you, and made you useful for his purposes. Something God does in the moment you come to faith, and it's something that he continues to do as you follow him. We are always, or should always, be becoming more holy in this life, set apart, more useful for the worship of God. And finally, finally, Jesus is our redemption. Now, this word's different than the previous three. Jesus is our wisdom, thus we're free from the foolishness of the world. He's our righteousness, so we're free from the guilt that we actually deserve. He's our sanctification, so we're cleansed from the filth. We're actually useful to God because of his grace. But redemption is sort of a bigger word. It encompasses a lot more. It's the kind of word that the Bible uses to describe salvation out of Egypt. It's the kind of word that that the Bible used to describe the the Israelites being delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Now, you got to think about this for a second, and you got to get what a beautiful picture Exodus is for what God has actually done for you. For 400 years, the people of God lived in continual, unending poverty, abuse, death, fear, labor, slavery, to the point where their taskmasters were plucking their newborn babies and throwing them into the Nile River. They dwelled in absolute horror. They dwelled in hell on earth. That was their existence until God, here's the word, redeemed them with an outstretched arm. He takes them out of the land of death brings them into the land of promise, and everything about their everyday existence changed. I mean, I don't think you get the the, the beauty of the moment in the Exodus story where they have been suffering so much and crying out to God when when after the spotless lamb dies and, and God passes over everyone who trusted the blood of the lamb as they're leaving Israel. What they're leaving is a place where all of the firstborns have died overnight and there's wailing and weeping in the streets and they're, they're leaving literally the land of death. And as they're going out, the people who were once their enemies, who were once beating them, are giving them all of their treasures just to get them out. And so in a moment, through the blood of a spotless lamb, they're redeemed. They leave the land of the dead and the wailing and the darkness and the slavery and the beatings and they're receiving all kinds of gifts and they're walking out of that land to a promised land where there's milk and honey and safety from all of their enemies. I mean, the, this is like the salvation story that the Lord's Supper is, is uh, the Passover was made, making them remember. And then when Jesus gets with his disciples, he says, take this bread, take this cup. This is about me now. I'm doing something greater than that salvation in your salvation. And here's the crazy thing about the story with Exodus and Israel. They did nothing to deserve that. <laughs> nothing. You learn it real quick in the Exodus story. They're no holier than the Egyptians were. <laughs> but God, out of his great grace, called them out of that and saved them. So that 
They would boast only in the Lord. That's the gospel story that Jesus has accomplished for you. So that when you come to the presence of God, you bring nothing but your sin and your struggles and your faithlessness. And he lavishes on you grace upon grace upon grace for a million years and a million more and a million more. And this text, 1 Corinthians one thirty one fully and finally happens forever. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, the gospel leaves no room for the arrogant. It redirects all of our boasting. So as we, as we close uh, this morning, let me just leave you with two takeaways that come straight from the text. Two things to consider. Number one, consider your calling. I mean, you personally consider your calling. I mean, if you were a child, when you came to believe in Jesus, you should marvel at the grace of God that at a young age, he would open your eyes to truth for no reason other than the fact that God's gracious. If you were an adult who lived a godless life much of your life, marvel that God would work in you despite your rejection of him over and over and over again. The passage here should humble the proud and it should encourage the downcast and the self-loathing. If you're sitting here thinking, God could never use me, this, this passage encourages you. It's not about you. If you're sitting here thinking, God should use me, this should humble you because it's not about you. Two wonders we confess, our worth and our unworthiness. And if you're here this morning uh, and, and you've seen no change in your life, no redirecting of your boast from self to the Lord, then what if God's calling you right now? Maybe you're here in this place in this moment because God's drawing you to himself right now. And the thing that you've got to do is admit you can't save yourself and that you need what Jesus offers and plead for him to give you the faith in what he did at the cross. If that's you and you're wrestling with that, I urge you, talk to someone before you leave this place. Consider your calling. Consider whether you've heeded the call. And then secondly, consider your boasting. Consider your calling. Takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, consider your boasting. Where is arrogance showing itself in your life? Where is pride affecting your ability to be faithful? Is it affecting your marriage? Is it affecting your prayer life? Is it hurting your witness at work or in relationships? What does it mean for you to redirect your boasting so that you're a person who is actively and regularly boasting in the Lord alone? Let's pray for that reality. Lord, we come to you and we just ask, uh, please redirect the boasting of my heart. Redirect the boasting of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would arm us 
with all that the good news of Jesus means for us. Help us to use the gospel to combat the pride in our own hearts actively. Uh, Ephesians 6 tells us that, that we are in a war every day against things that are unseen, spiritual things, unseen, that every Christian's in a war with all the evil forces seeking to devour us and destroy us and to prevent us from being on mission for God. And so, Lord, may we take the sword, which is the word, which is the story of the gospel, and would you help us to use it to remind ourselves to fight, to boast in you and you alone, Father. We pray. Help us to be a humble people. Help us to be a believing people. Help us to be a worshiping people, we pray. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.